This morning, it is September 7th. It is 2014. The message today is called D-Day, Operation Overlord. So D-Day is an interesting story. Um, I won't go into all of how that came about, but there's great debate among military historians as to why it's called D-Day. Some say it's disembarkation day. It's the day that everybody was landing on the shore and getting off the boats. Others simply say it was such a closely guarded secret that they simply said on the day of the invasion and they abbreviated that on D-Day because no one uh, would know save only a few people when this would take place. I would like to remind you that even in secular history, God moves and he works. If you've ever studied the prophet Isaiah, you see this with Cyrus. You see it in the kingdoms of the world. And while we're talking about a military operation today called Overlord, I would like you to think about the Lord who is over us and what his lordship actually means. Amen? With the beheading of James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, with the disturbing events in Ferguson and the flood of immorality around us all the time, These could be easily fretful times. It might develop in you a pessimistic pessimistic strain. It's important that we begin to concentrate on a few things. It's important that we begin to settle in our hearts a few things. We're going to start with 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love. How much fear coexists with love? None. There is no fear. Zero, zilch, denada if you like. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. What does love do to fear? It drives it out. It gets rid of it. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I would like to tell you that I have something that ISIS does not have today. I have something If if you prefer the term ISIL, that they can't get. I have the Father's perfect love. And I'm not uh, fearful of dying. You say, oh, well, Shahada martyrs are not fearful of dying either. No, they look forward to death because they believe there is a carnal pleasure in it. They believe there is something waiting for them that is sensual in nature by their warlord God and their pedophile prophet. But in my heart... I don't fear death because I already experienced the perfect love of the Father. And to be absent from this life is to be present with Him. And once you take away the fear of death from a Christian, then you have to say, even if the whole world is against me, God is for me. How can I fear? You can look and say, greater is He that is with me than he that is in the world. You can look with confidence into the face of troublesome times and have no fear because of your father's perfect love. Brother Wade preached some weeks ago. Are we there yet? He preached about the topic, little by little God will give us victory if we trust him. I want to tell you that every day that you face troubling times and you do it with a big faithful smile and you drive fear out of your heart because you are in love with the Lord and you believe He loves you, this is a victory. It's little by little taking the land. Brother Matthew preached on the topic of just breathe. 
He said, we pray until we have exhaled our problems and we have inhaled God's perspective. It's when your heart becomes troubled, when you begin to pray, slowly the fear is driven out by the love the Father has lavished upon you. How important is it that we spend time in His presence? Brother Tommy preached a message called Bite Back. We will not crumple in a corner when attacked by the devil. What do we do? We turn and bite back through evangelism. We clinch, turn, and mount an offensive. We go after the enemy of our faith, and we do it in the love of the Father. Brother Brent preached a message called Fear versus Desire. Fear is a pathway to the devil's will in your life, while godly desires are rewarded by our King. In the name of Jesus, we stand in the position to either be crumpled by fear or to drive it out with the love of the Father. Have you noticed that phobias never decrease over time? You never meet a man who is 30 who has a phobia that when he's 60, it has lessened. If anything, they grow. I want to tell you today to displace fear. Not because you're an amazing, courageous person, but because you know the character of your God. And come hell or high water, you know that your king has got good plans for you. This will allow you to be men and women of valor. This will allow you to take delight in your footsteps wherever they lead you. We have a president who some say believes himself a monarch. Others say he's invested himself with dictatorial powers. Yet he has absolutely no plan for facing the evils of our day. When faced with advancement of Islam in Syria, he drew a pink line in the sand. When faced with the murder of Christians in Iraq, at best we call to the UN for a little help. But King Jesus is not panicked. He's not hysterical. King Jesus is not troubled by a misguided political ideology. He has a victorious plan. He has a plan for his church that transcends political powers. He has a plan for his church that is so simple that we could miss it. Have you ever participated in a complex offense? When I was in ninth grade, I wanted to play on the varsity basketball team. And I wanted to play basketball not because I loved it, but because I wanted to stay in shape year-round for football that I did love. So basketball and track were simply a necessity. We ran an offense called the wheel. Is anybody familiar with the wheel? Oh my goodness, it's always, always movement, hence the wheel. And being the youngest member on the varsity squad, I I was having a hard time with such a complex offense. Anybody in football ever seen the West Coast offense? Okay, I grew up with a football coach. So he had no problem drawing these things on a chalkboard. He had no problem talking with them in great depth. He had no problem examining those things. I just wanted to know who to tackle and where to carry the ball. I'm happy to say that Jesus' plan is not complex. Consider the simplicity of this statement. This is Romans 12 and verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is there anybody in here that finds that so complex that you don't understand it? I'm not saying it's easy to do. I'm simply saying when faced with evil, what do we use against evil? When faced with evil, what do we use against evil? Yeah, we don't form committees. Uh, you may own a gun, but gun is, a gun is, is not how we face evil. You, you may have 
life insurance. You may have locks on your doors. You may have windows. But that is not God's plan for dealing with evil. What is God's plan with dealing with dealing with evil? It's overcome it with good. In other words, for every wicked thing that is done, there is a good thing that will resolve it. Paul said we wage war, but we do not wage war as the world does. We have weapons of righteousness in our right hand and our left. And he goes on to say they destroy every pretension and argument that set itself up against the knowledge of God. So a weapon of righteousness is the answer for an argument. It's the answer for a pretension. In other words, when faced with something evil, what is the answer? Something good. Now, how many of you were born inherently good? (laughs) An interesting thing about the Bible topic. The Bible teaches that we were sinners from birth. When you have children, you begin to see this. At two years old, a child will lie to you about whether or not he has filled his diaper. At two years old, a child will try to steal his best friend's lollipop. At two years old, a child will open a Christmas present and say he didn't do it. This is because wickedness is bound up in the heart of man. The 17th chapter of Jeremiah says it's deceitful beyond cure. But God is able to create in us new hearts. He's able to create in us, out of that darkness, He speaks light. And that light brings order and it brings life. How about the simplicity of this statement? Luke 6, 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. How many people think that that's an excellent military strategy? They're shooting at you, go hug them. Uh, they just, just dropped a dirty bomb in, in your city, go, go love on them. And yet, this is the battle plan of our God. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Do you know who can do such a thing? Someone who is so confident in the love of their God, so confident in the will of their God that they care nothing for their own life. Someone that can look in the face of a radical jihadist and give them a hug and say, I pray God has mercy on your soul because I was once blind and now I see. The kind of faith that Stephen could look into the face of a murderous crowd and say, Father, forgive them. The kind of love and faith that Jesus showed in his father, in his father, when being crucified, he said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is complete and utter trust in God's judgment. There is no fear in it because you know how he feels about you. In Matthew 12 and verse 17, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. How many of you felt the spirit of the living God today? Then you are loved and you are chosen. God delights in you because he only puts his spirit on those that he loves, that he's chosen, and that he delights in. If you felt the presence of God today, it is a sign that God loves you, that God delights in you, and that he has chosen you. And when you get that revelation, there has to be a response to it. 
If He has shown you love that you did not deserve, if He has chosen you when you did not deserve it, if He delights in you when your deeds have not merited it, it ought to make you want to reciprocate. I will put my spirit on Him and He will proclaim justice to the nations. The world that we live in is unjust, is it not? The United Nations can condemn every right thing that Israel does because they're a godless band of dictators ruled by a Muslim majority and financed by this country. But there is justice. And the King of Kings will not, will not fail to make sure that justice is done all over the earth. Listen to verse 19. It's such an odd thing. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. Our king is not self-aggrandizing. He's not self-promoting. He does not need his best life now. He does not need every day to be like Friday. He can stand right now and say, do your worst and I will have mercy on you. Strike me and I will have mercy on you. Crucify me and I will have mercy on you because there will be a day that mercy comes to an end. This is the day of salvation. This is the time to kiss your enemies. This is the time for unmerited favor in every direction because we know that there is a day coming when He will lead justice to victory all over the planet. And if you are certain that the judge is going to render a decision in favor of justice, you don't worry about how the trial's going. Yeah? I've had the opportunity to sit in trials. In the end, he rendered a verdict in our favor. But i got to tell you, right up until the words came out of his mouth, I was working it out with fear and trembling. The king of kings has told us his verdict. He has told us how he is going to decide. And you can take hope in that. Look at verse 21. In His name, the nations will put their hope. Who will put their hope? The nations. Friends, that's the world. That's everyone. There is a day coming when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. In a different time, when leaders were not... Let me say it this way. In a different time, when leaders were elected for their skills rather than a cheap appeal to base desires of the entitlement class. Men understood the importance of decisive, determined action. In a different time, when the stakes were high and the world recognized it, men like Winston Churchill began to rise to prominence. During the heat of World War II, a fat, nearly bald, cigar-smoking, Drunkard got a plan that helped save the world. Does God choose the lowly things? Does He choose the humble things? The despised things? I mean, there's plenty of reasons not to like Him. But if you're on the side of victory, there was at least one reason to like Him. Someone once asked Winston Churchill, how do you think history will view you? He said... I think that it will view me favorably. I intend to write it. <laughs> History is written by the victors. When France was occupied, when the world was succumbing to a Nazi power, 
driven by demonic antichrist ideology, much exactly like this Islamo-fascism that we're seeing all over the globe today. He was asked what the policy was. This was his answer, and I say the church could take instruction from it. You ask, what is our policy? I say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all of our might, with all of our strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never suppressed, surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crimes. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer with one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. I would like to remind you, church, that if King Jesus is not victorious, then this is pointless. I would like to remind you, if your own life is not victorious, this is pointless. I will not live as a slave. I will not live subjugated by this world. And you say, well, what what is it that you mean by that? I say anyone who is sinning is a slave to sin. Jesus Christ came to set me free. And when he sets you free, you're free indeed. Victory is taken little by little. Victory is taken as we exhale our problems and inhale Jesus. Victory is taken as we displace fear with faith. Victory is taken as we clench, turn, mount an offensive and bite back. Victory comes. One habit at a time. Victory comes. One confrontation with evil at a time. And I don't care whether the fight takes place on the land, the water, or the air. Our God has given us equipment for all of the above. We are not an ill-equipped army. The world can shake in their boots because the Muslims are coming. Praise God, I hope they do come to our country in even greater numbers. It will save us the ticket to their countries. Oh no, the Muslims are crossing the southern border. If the missionaries hadn't abandoned it, we could meet them at the border with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may not like our national policies. The pulpits are supposed to be politically neutral, so I will let you know Nothing about that other than all of our problems come from the left side of the room. I say that the answer is God's victorious gospel. The things that you do matter. Our modern theologies of escapism, prosperity, and hyper-grace are about to be tested in a way that will let you know if they're true or not. Consider these kinds of statements. Consider them in the light of the scripture that we'll read today. They're all quotes or direct, either direct or indirect. God would not let his bride be beaten. Oh, this is so popular, it's, Im- it's impossible to source. How do you think the Christians in Erbil, in Mosul, feel about that statement? God will not allow his bride to be beaten. If that has been your theology, I invite you to examine it again. When you see the little mark... That ISIS has put on the homes marking Christians before they raped them, murdered them, and drove them out. Consider the utter ridiculousness of that statement. When thinking on the lives of the apostles, considering that none of them are standing here in the flesh with us today, consider the utter ridiculousness of that statement. 
How about this one? It's all over the newspapers today. Miss Osteen blessed us with this direct quote. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God. Really, you're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. This ultimate expression of the prosperity gospel, that God is your little blessings genie, and he is put there to serve your happiness at your whims. Oh, this will be tested. Because what happens when you can't ride a secret elevator to your pulpit anymore? What happens when the town square is full of the heads of the martyrs that have been cut off? I doubt this kind of theology will float any longer. Maybe even more dangerous. This is a conglomerate quote from many that I would term hyper-grace preachers. God doesn't see your sin. He's already forgiven it. Confession for the Christian is a work adding to the cross that misunderstands grace. You people are in the sin management business with your talk of continual repentance. Those are three quotes from three different leaders all rolled into one satanic lie. I would like you to consider that in light of just one scripture. The hyper-grace teaching, the escapism, the prosperity teaching turns me to Revelation 14, 9. Are y'all in Revelation 14 and verse 9? Are y'all awake this morning? I've, I've taken a layoff of some five weeks. You got your affirmation in worship. It's go time now. You can put on the gloves. You can come out of the corner ready to take a shot and deliver a shot because God did not cause you to be a butter knife. He called you to be a war club. Jeremiah said so. So let's put powder puff Christianity in the back seat for a minute. Let's stand up and be men and women of God and examine the scripture with holy veracity. Amen. Amen. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's happiness for you on Fridays. He too will drink the wine of God's fury. God's what? Oh, friends, he's accepting today. He blesses. Those who curse today, He commands us to do it. There is a day coming when the full measure of His fury will be poured out on this planet. Today is the day of salvation. This scripture says He too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. Does that sound like a hipster or hippie God is love scripture to you? Oh, well... Let me ask you, is this on the right side of your Bible or the left side of your Bible? (laughs) It's certainly not an Old Testament scripture so that liberal theologians could excuse it as some other dispensation. This speaks of the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. This speaks of the culmination of the ages. There is a cup full of God's fury. Do you know who is filling it? Those who do evil now. This is why you don't have to fight back. This is why you don't have to worry for your life. Because it is filling God's cup 
a fury for this planet and He will not fail to deal with those who do not find mercy. If vengeance belongs to our God, who does it not belong to? And every time we leave room for Him, let me just say He is better at it than we are. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That doesn't sound like a loss of blessings, does it? And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. The escapists told us we wouldn't be here. Oh, well, those saints, that must be the Jews. If you've only ever mentioned the word Jew in some kind of business talk or in a racial pejorative that in some way described greedy or evil intent, you're going to be sorely disappointed when you meet their king. The scripture defines in the very same sentence that it mentions saints who they are. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. If you remain faithful to Jesus, you're a saint. In the day that this occurs in, will take patient endurance. It would be very, very difficult to stand and bless people that God is going to pour His wrath out upon. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. When do you ever hear that preached? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. We cannot be the church of Jesus Christ and fight to save our own lives. We cannot be the church of the King of Kings and cower in the face of ISIS. Maybe it's true when they said we're no longer a Christian nation. When we don't know how to handle evils anymore, we have ceased to represent Jesus. That is definitely true. But that's not who you are. That's not who you are called to be. Listen to the encouragement at the end of this verse. Yes, says the Spirit. I want you to hear this. Jesus could be speaking. The Father could be speaking. But the Holy Spirit speaks a message as well. And He says, yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. In this age, we need to be reminded that what you do now, it matters. The idea that confession is no longer important if you're in Christ. The idea that repentance is a dead work adding to the cross. These are demonic lies. Every bit as much as you serve God simply to make yourself happy is a ridiculous demonic lie. Your deeds will follow you. For an eternity. And they were meant to be a crown. Every time you bless the one who slaps you. Every time you pray for the one who persecutes you. Every time you act like Christ. It was meant to crown you for an eternity. How many of you get happy when you walk into a jewelry store with a checkbook? Oh, come on. Anybody got an engagement ring? Ladies, Ella, did you get an engagement ring? Did you like it? I mean, you didn't take it, spit on it, and throw it away, did you? Did it make you feel good? 
Blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted. You know why? Because it's like going to the jewelry store. You're building your crown. We wonder and we worry. Oh, what will God let happen to us? You ought to be excited to get a chance to suffer for the name. Peter and John left after suffering for the name, rejoicing. That means to leap and to spin because they get to wear that story for an eternity. Oh, people can ride their secret elevators to their pulpits, live behind locked gates, and just smile for the cameras. But for an eternity, they will be naked if present at all. Oh, saints, I want to go to the heavenly jewelry store. I care nothing for riches now because the riches I get to wear for eternity are the things that I did for Him in faith prompted by love. Oh, church, this could be our very finest hour. This is our time. We were meant for this. Let the cowards go hide in the corners. You were called to greatness. It's time to shine like stars. If 1 John 2 and verse 18 says that this is the last hour, oh my goodness, if we're writing in the first century and it's the last hour, what is it now, dear children? This is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Why? Because the spirit of the Antichrist was manifesting in his puppets all over the place. Open your eyes. If you can't see the spirit of the Antichrist brought to you in our daily news right now, then you are truly blind and need salve for your eyes. If you can't see that the church in large part, at least what is called the church, is virtually apostate, You need salve for your eyes. And yet I'm not pessimistic about it at all. This is our time to shine. This is the time in which God will make it clear. Our friend Churchill said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Church, this is our hour of perseverance. You don't have to win. All you have to do is continue to stand. You have to refuse to give up, to hide, to cower in fear. Maybe this Halloween you consider turning on your lights. Maybe when you go into Walmart, you don't get in and out as quick as you can and run from every burka you see. Maybe you consider that this is our finest hour. And if something happens, praise God, you wear it for an eternity. The same brother said success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Come on now. Almost everything I've ever done in this life failed and yet you're still sitting here. How does that work? Because often in the ashes of my own failure, we see the life of God. I bring Him ashes and He gives me something beautiful. I don't have to be smarter. I don't have to be more articulate. I don't have to be better looking. I don't need this success gospel. Because my King has chosen the lowly. He's chosen the humble. He's chosen the broken and the contrite. And out of your failures, He will bring the flowers of eternal life. Oh, church... 
that we would not lose our enthusiasm as we come to this point, as we come to this time. We've been so fat, so well fed, and have fallen so asleep. This is a blessing. 9-11 approaches and everyone wonders what will happen. I don't want there to be loss of life. I don't want there to be terror. And yet, if there is, we were born for this. You know, those who practice in F-16s are excited when they get a chance to use their skills. The only people that are disappointed when a ceasefire happens are the fighter pilots because they've worked their entire lives for the chance to run their sorties. And they don't want to be denied their moment. You can talk about the horrors of war, and we certainly will. But I can also tell you there is a camaraderie that comes from battle that bonds men for life. And the church of the living God will grow stronger in our love for Him and stronger in our love for each other as we face terror together. I would submit that it's not terror. It's an encouragement. I can do things ISIS can only dream of. In a moment, I can be in the presence of God. The best they can do is surrender this life in the hope that they will have some perverse sensuality. Any carnal... My dog lives for such pleasures. Is that... Beast live for such pleasures as that. I have a higher ground. I want to encourage you with the sixth chapter of Galatians, starting in the ninth verse. Tell me there when you are there. One of you, I'm going to wait for every one of you, so you better learn to speak in church. Let us not, let who? Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. How important is it that you fight through failure? How important is it that you do not give up? We have a balloon payment coming, friends. (laughs) The grace of the ages falls on one final generation. And they get to stand against the evils of the day. Every generation has taken its stand and yet more has been required of some generations than others. One of the saddest things that we're experiencing now is the character that won the Second World War has now nearly entirely left the earth. And because of that, we know little of sacrifice. Because of that, we know little of the heroism that goes along with it. The deck has always been stacked against us. In James, the first chapter in the 27th verse, in such a pure and sweet scripture, you need to hear the way it finishes. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. We love that. This church operates that way. We move in it. But look how it finishes. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. If the world was polluted in the first century, what do you think it is now? Are things growing progressively better? Is that what the Bible teaches? Or are the wicked becoming more wicked? They invent ways of doing evil. In the first century, you had to go to a wicked place to do wicked things. Now you can pipe it right into your brain through your smartphone. Mindless drones 
walking around completely plugged in to demonic lyrics, demonic music, and the spirits of demons, and they walk around talking to themselves all of the time, all around us. We think nothing of it because the days have grown so dark that we don't even notice. Next time you're driving down Highway 6, notice how many people are walking on the side of the road that are speaking to something, if not themselves. It's incredible. We live in demonic times. And I'm excited we were born for this. It's no longer hard to find. You no longer have to get on a boat and sail around the world. You can do battle with celestial powers without leaving the comfort of your home city. The enemy has brought the fight to us. And what a mistake that will be in the end. The church can go to sleep because it hasn't been slapped in the face. Let it get assaulted and all of its ridiculous carnal theology will begin to melt away. And those who have clung to the word of God will rise to the surface. We need to realize that this world environment has a polluting effect that must be fought at every turn. There is a subtle frog in the kettle desensitization, a kind of brainwashing going on all around us. The internet and the TV have brought Sodom and Gomorrah into our living rooms and we have become acclimated to it. That is much of the church has adjusted to our environment to the point that the inner protest has begun to die. Oh, church, this is why we must get in the presence of God. We must regain our inter-protest. Do you realize that you stand in a church that secular historians would call protestant? Well, what do you protest today? Rome no longer holds sway over you, so what do you protest today? Sin used to shock us. Have you gotten to the place where it amuses you? We have learned to laugh when we ought to have cried. Preachers have failed us, this preacher included. But we're now receiving a wake-up call from radical Islam as practiced by the pedophile prophet Muhammad. You know, people say, oh, well, it's moderate Islam. There's moderate this and there's moderate that. I have one question for you. Mr. Moderate, wherever you are listening... Was Muhammad a moderate or a radical? Do you think that Muhammad is the ideal Muslim or not? Because he advocated cutting heads off and he himself was a child molester. So if you are moderate, you must not like the leader of your religion. Oh, it's just a few radicals. If you idolize Muhammad, then I wonder if it's possible. And I used idolize intentionally. I wonder if it's possible to be a moderate. If you're willing to say that you're a Muslim, but you do not want to be like Muhammad, then I will call you a moderate. If you want to be like Muhammad, then it's as radical as it could possibly get because the things that Muhammad said came straight from the devil. And it would take a lethargic, apathetic, biblically ignorant church to not realize that. Even lost comedians that are now facing their judgment could see these things coming. Their protest had not died, but the church sits by silent. You know, in World War II, the greatest tragedy was that the church did not recognize the hour that it was in. 
We have a few German theologians that we can say thank you for, but the greater majority of the church simply act like it was not happening. We live in a time with more artificial illumination, both physically and spiritually, than ever before, but there is far less spiritual light. Our programs, entertainment, and self-help preaching cannot be a substitute for the burning, passionate power of the Son of God. A lack of backbone in the pulpit has allowed sheep to become social with Sodom and chummy with Gomorrah to the point where we're in danger of not shining the light, just getting used to the dark. Praise God. Struggle will redraw our lines. Now is the time for a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. When it matters, we rise to our feet. When it matters, we can no longer slumber when we should pray. When it matters, we pray for healing. How many of you have had a tragedy in your life that shook you to a place where you drew closer to the Lord? Funerals are a wonderful place for an altar call. Hospital rooms are a great time to pray. We can mock it. We can say, oh, it took that to get you to... It always takes that. We're all made of the same stuff. When you're in leisure and you're in comfort, in relative ease, we all begin to lean on our own arm. We all begin to fancy ourselves in our best lives now. But when that stuff begins to get stripped away, some will begin to cling to the righteous one, the holy one, because when you are in distress, you need a Savior. You don't want a pocket genie that is there to bless you. You don't want a fire escape plan. You don't want some prosperity idol. You want a Savior. Oh, praise God that we live in these times because the world is going to need a Savior. Galatians 1 and verse 3 says this. I'm sorry, Genesis 1 and verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and He separated light from darkness. When there's a separation between light and darkness, when light is light and dark is dark, then we do away with the moderate middle ground. Our churches will no longer be full of prodigals living like swine, but dressed as angels. We will reject the age of self-enlightenment that learns to dress the part while refusing to live the, the part. We will want our Bibles rather than our best lives. If Genesis calls the light light and the dark dark, are we not compelled to do the same? I received phone calls last week from preachers that listen to our messages online. They are not a part of our one association, at least not yet. They wanted to know if I had a bodyguard. I said, yes, I have a bodyguard. His name is Jesus Christ. I cannot slip from this life and into the next until he allows it. And when I do, it shall be glory upon glory. A declared sinner will no longer be an extinct animal. Genuine repentance will come with genuine need. Oh, when there are no 401Ks, when there is no safe shelter, then you will seek out the secret place of the Most High. Guys, 
Have you noticed that Hollywood has become fascinated with apocalyptic movies? Why do you think that is? Even the world can feel that the window is closing. If Peter said, I'm sorry, John said it was the last hour 2,000 years ago, certainly we must have made it to minutes. Isaiah 5 and verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. If you can stand with a straight face on national television and say the point of serving God has nothing to do with God, it's really all about you, and then have the gall, the audacity to stand and defend the statement, I think you have conclusively proven even to your most adamant supporters that you have not one theological clue that you are standing on and may be possessed of an evil spirit. Oh, that we could get back to a place where the church could see what is light and darkness. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Is that a fair question? What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? In God's eyes, nothing. In the modern church, they can be mixed in equal parts without problem. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Paul once asked this question, friends. It came in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 7. He said, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a flute or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is distinction In the notes. If you all dress like a guitar, how will we know whether it's in tune or not? How will we know whether or not it can actually be used in the hands of the maestro? Somebody has got to play the notes. And in the notes, you will know. We have many guitar players in this church. Have you never picked up one that cannot be put in tune? Have you never picked up one that was constructed so poorly it simply could not be played with any effect? The foundations that the church world lives on are about to be shaken. And the instruments that are made in righteousness will receive a tuning and the ones that have no grounding in righteousness will receive a pruning out of the body of Christ. I live for this moment... Others can fear it. I long for it. I say that the distinction in our notes cannot simply be a matter of theology. It must be displayed in our own lives. Malachi 3.17 says it like this. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, what are you? A treasured possession. The whole earth belongs to the Lord. But He treasures us. I will spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. By using the word again, you can see that our God predicted that there would be a time when you could not. In Genesis 1-3, He separated light from darkness. It was clear there was a distinction. 
But as men ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then they were doing both good and evil and the distinction began to disappear. But God would take some to Him whom He calls sons. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Do you know that it is possible to speak favorably about God? It is possible to quote Scripture about God and never come close to serving Him. Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord. He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I say we're living in a day when the contrast is going to be sharpened. Anybody have one of those old black and white televisions that you had to work the dials? Oh, man. If your contrast wasn't right, it was not a pretty picture. But when you got it sharp, for you young people, when we get it to 1,080 DPI, suddenly it takes on all kind of new life. So will the body of Christ. When you can see who loves the Lord and who doesn't love the Lord simply by the way they react to the evils of their day, oh, it will paint a beautiful picture. Seventy years ago, the world faced the evils of its day and it produced heroism that changed the planet. This stuff's probably not even taught in schools anymore. And when it is, I'm sure that there's some kind of moral equivalence being drawn so that you actually empathize with Nazis. I'm sure that somehow or another America is guilty for actually winning a war. These days, we like to respond in proportion. I have no interest in responding in proportion to evil. I want to exterminate evil. I don't want that if one of our people's head is cut off by a foreign nation to simply see a respond in like. That is not how a war is won. It's not how a war with the devil is won either. When slapped in the face... We will lay down our lives for people. That's not proportion. That's incredibly disproportionate. We demonstrate our love and that while they're still sinners, we do what our Christ did. That's disproportionate. We have national policies and we have personal policies and we need to learn to differentiate between the two. As a nation, I want a nation that responds with overwhelming, sudden, final, decisive force. As a person, I'm going to show overwhelming, sudden, decisive mercy. This is the difference between national powers that have been invested with the gun and personal lives that have been invested with the Holy Ghost. There should be more amens for that. Since 1942, Joseph Stalin, Joseph Stalin, had been urging for a new front in Western Europe to take some pressure off of his troops. He'd been complaining that his soldiers were carrying too much of the burden. Russia, in that day, had responded to the evils of its day with greater tenacity and veracity than the United States had yet come to. What an interesting parallel. Sometime, if you really want to see something interesting... Read about the year 1986 and four Russian diplomats that were taken captive in Syria. Russia got three of them back because they sent the body parts of terrorist 
relatives back to terrorists until they got them back. Today, Russia has no problem saying homosexuality is evil, but we have a problem saying it. We're in a position where even an evil regime that is based on oppression sees more clearly than our national powers. Well, in 1942, Russia had been carrying the bulk of the war burden. The British had already tried an amphibious assault. They targeted the French port of Depp in August of 1942, and they got beat so badly that even Winston Churchill said, uh, we've had all the fun with that, we can stand. We're going to have to find another way, perhaps the Italian front. Roosevelt and Stalin got together. They decided against Churchill's advice that we needed an amphibious assault against Germany. That if we did not do it, we could not turn the tide of the war. And they set a preliminary date in 1944 for a seaborne invasion in northern France. They picked Normandy, but no one knew it. I'd like to show you a picture. What an interesting thing here. The little guy on the right is Winston Churchill. Probably be easy to overlook in a crowd, but if the world did not have him, although he was a drunkard, although he was not a tall man, although he's not what most would say is physically fit, he loved cigars, loved whiskey. He had a tenacious spirit that would not yield to what he knew was wicked. Some would call that conviction. Roosevelt in the center looks like most American presidents, dignified. That's about all I'll say about that. The guy on the left killed as many men as Hitler did. He killed more than Hitler did. He's guilty of war crimes beyond description. And yet even he knew that Hitler had to be confronted. They decided to do it. The weather on D-Day was far from ideal. But if they postponed, it would mean that they missed a window. The invasion plans... They relied on the phases of the moon, the tides, the time of the day. There are only a few days that were even possible to do what they were being asked to do. If you think obedience in the moment is optional, you have no idea what the spiritual tides are. You have no idea what the conditions will be five minutes from now. How much better is it to run when he says to do it? If they had waited... There are an untold string of events that would have transpired or rather not transpired and the war would not have been winnable. Hitler placed the German field marshal Erwin Rommel in command of Germany's forces. He prepared an Atlantic seawall in anticipation of an allied invasion that would be led by Eisenhower. Yes, this is Rommel. You may have known Rommel for his campaigns in North Africa. He fought with Patton. He fought with tanks. He was brilliant. Something to be feared. Many times the German machinery was better. The leadership in many cases was better. You had every reason to be afraid. France had already become occupied. In a minute I'll show you a map, but not yet. How many of you in this room have some ties to Louisiana? Wow. 
There's an American Noah story that you may not know. Andrew Jackson Higgins nearly failed in life. He designed a particular boat that nobody wanted. He bankrupted himself trying to get the U.S. military to consider it and nobody would. He was from Louisiana. And he had seen the devastation when the Mississippi River overflowed its levees. And he thought of and designed a boat that could make it into shallow waters and unload equipment. No one was interested until the stakes raised so high that without a Normandy evasion being successful, the Allies had no chance of success. And then guess whose design they became interested in? This boat, who builds a boat that the bow collapses? <laughs> you see the picture of the little car in it? Let's go to the next one. They used these boats to make a rapid advancement on the beach. They knew that it was more important to get into occupied territory quickly than it was to stay out on the sea safely forever. The boat's very design risked something. It's built to go, not to sit, just like the church. It's built to lay down its all, not to sit back in security and safety, just like the church. Andrew Jackson Higgins, a poor Louisiana man who nearly bankrupted himself, eventually sold 20,000 of these to the Allied forces. And his people are doing pretty good today. The United States shipped more than 7 million tons of supplies. That translates to 14 billion pounds of material in anticipation of the Normandy invasion. I'd like to show you how they did that. Let's move to the next pictures. This is picture five. Now some of you may immediately go, oh my goodness, especially you Pentecostals, we can see legs. What you're seeing is a Lifetime magazine ad. It's in the years just prior to the Normandy invasion. This ad is telling them that Uncle Sam had issued restrictions on the amount of fabric that could be in a hem on a dress. The hems on the dress could no longer be any wider than what was being shown. It was popular at the time to have wide bands at the bottom of your dresses, and they wanted that fabric for uniforms for soldiers for canvas, for parachutes. They wanted that fabric for the war effort. What you're seeing in the bottom, women at the time were using fabric as belts and they were wide. That's the picture on the right. And Uncle Sam was saying, we would prefer to see you change your fashion and use a belt more akin to what a man would wear because we need that fabric. Can you imagine today if we said to save the people in Mosul, we need you to change the way you dress. Could we get a third of the United States to do it? Could we get a fifth? Could we get a tenth? Could we find five righteous people who would do it? A nation answered this call. What you're seeing here is a factory. Women are working eight hours a day, six days a week. Minimum pay is 78 cents per hour. That puts weekly wages at about 40 bucks. 
And they're working. Do you know why? Because their husbands were at war and they wanted to support a war effort. You know why? The stakes were high. When we were hit on our Pacific front, it woke people up. And they began to go, this war could come to our country if we don't do something about it. Free a man to fight. Office stations, trains, and shops. What you see is a woman working in a filling station so that her husband could go off to war. Have you ever had the question, I just don't know how we do so much ministry and maintain our family. When you're at war, you don't have time to ask those kind of questions. I would tell you, you maintain your family by moving in ministry appropriately. You can fight to save your family by withdrawing from ministry. I I think you'll lose both. Our families become pretty strong because we minister together in all that we do, everywhere we go, at all times. For us, ministry is not two exclusive roles, hers and his. We do it together. I don't mind taking my little girl to face Muslims because she has something they don't. Save your cans. Help us pass the ammunition. Can you imagine a day when every beer can in the United States went to make a bullet? There was a billboard on Highway 59 in this city inside the loop that said, Save a cap so you can kill a Jap. Because when the stakes are high, every facet of your existence begins to go towards a war effort. Food is a weapon. Don't waste it. Buy wisely. Cook carefully. Eat it all. Follow the National Maritime Nutrition Program. Americans considered what we ate as part of the war effort. This man put himself at 34... Uh, I'm sorry, 34 young men like this one put themselves in the position of being starved. They faced systematic starvation so that they could help the troops by determining what the effects would be on the body, how to best overcome them. If our men in concentration camps had not eaten in so many days, what do you feed them? How do you feed them when you rescue them? What are the medical conditions? They actually went through peril so that we could figure out how to rehabilitate our brothers who were fighting in the war. Church, are you feeling me yet? I'm not trying to give you a history lesson as much as I'm trying to say when the stakes are high, you start to throw away political correctness. You start to throw away concern for self. When the stakes are high... There's a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. There is a distinction that says, I now care about not just what I eat, but who I eat with. Have y'all seen that in this church lately? I won't eat with those who are sexually immoral and call themselves brothers. Won't happen. You repent or the church of God has no other such practice. Get away from us. When the stakes are high, you don't just attend church anymore. You become the church. There should be an amen there. Second Peter 1 and verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a holistic war effort in every area of your life at all times, whether by sea, land, or air. Grow! Put it into practice. Don't sit and soak. Don't sit on your salvation when it was meant to be the sword of the Spirit. We can't shrink from these hours. We were born for these hours. This is the chance to wash our hands, purify our hearts, and let Christ's light shine upon us. He affirmed us during worship. Did you hear it? You have received me as a victorious king, the prophecy said, and I call you my sons and daughters. You will know my will, he said. What an honor it is to be a friend of the king but what a responsibility it is as well of those supplies that made it to normandy 4448 tons were ammunition church we need to arm ourselves with the word of god 4448 tons on june 5th 1944 between 11 and 3 p.m. or 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. 13,000 allied paratroopers and gliders carrying heavy equipment leave England to begin the invasion of France by air. Every invasion in history was supported from the air or the sea. We live in a day when we have a chance to pray about the war before you have boots on the ground. And we need to do it. June 6, 1944, overnight a military armada of 156,000 troops crossed the English Channel. Minesweepers go ahead to clear the waters in preparation for more than 2,300 landing crafts carrying men, vehicle, and supplies. Between midnight and 8 a.m., Allied forces of more than 11,000 aircraft fly 14,674 sorties. They lost 127 planes in a single day. By 6.30 a.m., troops begin coming ashore across a 60-mile front. There's a picture I'd like to show you. An ordinary man, a flawed man. This is Eisenhower. Now, the reason I'm showing you a picture of Eisenhower is this statement. In a broadcast message to the troops... Delivered before they left, Eisenhower said something. You talk about a statement of faith from a man that... From a man. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together in victory. We will accept nothing less than full victory was the message that went out. You need to understand something. There was no guarantee of success. It was H. Divisions that faced 55 German divisions. It was not an ideal landing spot. Definitely not the easiest. It was just one that the enemy didn't expect. Show me picture 12. To get this in your minds, everything in red right there, everything in red is occupied by Germany. This means France... Germany, Poland, everything around the Black Sea, all the way to Romania, Bulgaria, all of it 
occupy. This is what the map looks like on June 6, 1944. And yet the man said, the tide has turned. It most certainly had not turned. It didn't look as if it could turn. But the statement of faith steps out there and says, the tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. We will accept nothing less than full victory. When Peter was released from jail in the book of Acts, the angel told him, go into the courtyard and preach the full message. He didn't say, go preach your best life now. Go preach greasy grace. He said, tell them the whole story. We will settle for nothing less. The father of the faithful in Romans 4 is attributed or given a um, memorial statement by Paul, if you will. Verse 17 As it is written, I have made you a father to many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we have believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were. Our God can stand in the face of His people being decapitated and smile and say, The tide has turned. Against all hope. What did the situation look like for Abraham? Against all hope. Hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what He promised. That is why it was credited to Him as righteousness. Church, when there's more enemy on the map than there are a righteous remnant, is when the church can look at each other and say, together we go for victory. Now the tide has turned. No longer do we sit home and watch TV during a prayer meeting because it matters. It matters what we wear. It matters what we eat, who we eat with. It matters. Suddenly, our lives are filled with purpose. Some would look at those wartime efforts and say, oh, the restriction, the legalism that's there. Others said, even what I plant, even what I eat, even what I throw away has significance. Church, everything that we do has significance. The hour is upon us. Actually, the minutes may be upon us. We cannot shrink from these moments in history. Not going to read them, but you should write them. What do you think the map looked like in Daniel 7.21 when it says the power of the holy people was broken? Or he was waging war against the saints and defeating them. What do you think the map looked like in Matthew 24 verses 21 through 22 when he said if it were not for the elect, if it were not for the shortening of those days, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, the days will be shortened. Church, the spiritual map looks exactly 
like the natural map looked on June 6, 1944. We live in a time when what is called righteous is wickedness. And what is called wickedness is actually righteousness. And no one has seemed to notice the church has become accustomed to the darkness. And this is the time that some bold men and women can stand up and say, the tide's turning. It's in our favor. No longer will the worldly pass as holy. No longer will the holy be considered worldly. We will be known for what we are as proven by our fruit. Deuteronomy 20 in verse 1, when you go to war, not if you go to war, when you go to war, come on, say, I was built for war. I was built for war. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, oh, I was built for the day that I was outnumbered. Do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Verse 4, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you and to give against your enemies to give you Who gives the victory? It doesn't matter that Muslims multiply faster than Christians do. We can change that in a single day with evangelism. It doesn't matter that the birth rates are different. It doesn't matter that we have an impotent administration that has absolutely no idea how to organize this community. The Spirit of God can change it in a moment. I want to tell you about the state of the German army on the day of the invasion. For their part, the Germans suffered from confusion in the ranks because their celebrated commander, Rommel, had looked at the weather forecast. He had looked at the area and said, this week an invasion will not happen. And he was not there. You see, if they had delayed for a more favorable time, they would have met a stronger adversary. But God knew something that they didn't know. Rommel was on vacation that week. In fact, when Hitler received reports from those who worked for Rommel that said, the Allies are here, what they expected as a two-day response time turned into two weeks because Hitler didn't believe them. He didn't have the relationship with them that he had with Rommel. And he thought it was a false front. He thought it was a faint attack. He thought surely they were coming across the English Channel. He didn't expect it. Did you know our God can throw the enemy's camp into confusion? And the strong man you're so scared of may not even be there on the day of battle because that's the God that we serve. (laughs) Rommel, maybe the greatest mind among the Germans, was on vacation on D-Day. I love our God. The price is high, but it's worth it. There's no such thing as victory without sacrifice. And maybe more importantly, there is no such thing as courage without conviction. It's important that we begin to meditate on scriptures like this one. Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
I'd like you to consider the sacrifice in that statement. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. I'd like you to consider the conviction in that statement. Their convictions were more important than their lives. Now, Americans, we have talked a good game. We know the correctness of this theology. You may have even preached on it yourself. But when in your life have you proved that you cared more about the gospel than living itself? What in your actions has shown that? This is not a beat you up time. This is, this is what we aspire to. You may never have done this before. And I'm saying now you may get your chance like a line that I love in a movie that I cannot endorse. But I am not a warrior, said one man to another, handed him a sword and said, you soon will be. The enemy is upon us. The question is, what will you do with it? Five years before he died, General Eisenhower, the conquering hero at war's end, who later served two terms as an American president, went to a particular gravesite. He said, these men, by the way, there were 9,386 graves from just Americans in this gravesite. These men came here, British and our allies and Americans, to storm these beaches for one purpose only, not to gain anything for ourselves, not to fulfill any ambitions that America had for conquest, but to preserve freedom. Many thousands of men have died for ideals such as these, but these young boys were cut off in their prime. I devoutly hope that we will never again have to see such scenes as these. I think and hope and pray that humanity will have learned. We must find some way to gain an eternal peace for this world. I know something that Eisenhower didn't know. That kind of war will never bring the world an eternal peace. I know something Islam does not know. You cannot bring peace through conquest. I know something that ISIS does not know. I have a prince of peace, a king of kings, the almighty king of the Jews, and he is the only hope for the salvation of this world. It's in his name that justice extends over the earth. It's in his name, character, authority, body of work, that the nations receive peace. If it could be obtained through a gun, surely a couple world wars would have taught us. Revelation 13 and verse 9, He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance of those who miss the rapture. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the how can we live in a day where so many want to escape all that we were destined for? Well, I would surmise that what my brother Brent told me is true. Those who are pre that live during will soon learn that their position was wrong. Church, I don't want to have a theological bone to pick with you. I want to tell you we were born for this hour. We can't shy away from it. You need to love it. You need to live in it. You need to be excited about it. 1 Peter 3 says it this way. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? 
But if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have if they're coming to put a mark on your house the same way so many of you put a mark on your Facebook. What will your answer be? But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better to suffer for doing good. Churchill said this, character may be manifested in the great moments, but it is made in the small ones. I would tell you now, you're experiencing the same kind of tune-up contractions that Sam had. While we were celebrating with sushi, Sam's contractions were 10 minutes apart. We patiently endured and ordered another round and another round and another round while her body was being tuned up. Less than 24 hours later, the baby we were anticipating was coming. Those small contractions got her ready for the big ones. This time in our lives where you're experiencing minor brushes with the enemy is a chance to get your character right so that on that day what is manifested in you is nothing short of the glory of God. I admire men of conviction, especially if it runs contrary to the popular and is so deep that it cannot be uprooted in the face of criticism. I am silly enough to actually believe that what Jesus said in Matthew 6... Is true. I believe that this is the church of Jesus Christ and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Are you the church of Jesus Christ? If you are the church of Jesus Christ, then the gates of hell will never prevail against you. If you are overcome, then you are not part of the church of Jesus Christ. Let us not get up to the last moment. Say verse 18. <laughs> let's not get up to the last moment and fail. Let's, let's not do that. These times are meant to tune us up. Know for certain that any man who truly hears from heaven and acts on what he hears will be resisted at every turn. This is what's meant by 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The environment around us will war against us. And it is a sign that you're doing something right. Amen? There was a great evangelist that was quoted as saying, great results cannot be attained without both envy and opposition. How true he was. The criticism and opposition ultimately serves to be the proving ground that shows the difference between our fancies and our God-given convictions. Everybody wants to do something as long as it's popular. This week it's the sex trade that we're warring against. Last week it was puppies or dolphins. All may be noble, but if it cost you your life to do it, would you be there? Because that's the difference between a conviction and a passing fad. Francis Frangipanian, author in Iowa, said it this way. To inoculate me from the praise of man, he baptized me in the criticism of man until I died to the control of man. 
I say it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to protest enough to get baptized in criticism. Let's stop accepting politically correct language. If Islam is wicked, don't be scared to say so. If Muhammad is beyond wicked, don't be scared to say so. Why are we worried? If we're not trying to protect our lives, why are we worried? Well, we want to be an effective witness. You will never be an effective witness by refusing to call evil, evil. Studied the life of Jesus Christ. He didn't back away from the truth for a moment. This is the same loving God that looked at His own people and said, Your father is the devil. Think of our brother Stephen in Acts 6. Oh my goodness, full of grace, power, miracles. But did envy and opposition arise? Criticism killed him at the hands of an angry mob, but not before the sincerity of his convictions were proven to all who watched. Stephen is in glory. Where are his critics? Oh, church, consider this. Stephen lived out his convictions to the very end and he stands for all time a hero of heroes. Where are his critics? I'm going to close with a couple verses from Thessalonians. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 1. Starting in verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. You should not feel persecuted. We've come to this hour. You should feel chosen. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. With the Holy Spirit. You are chosen and you have been empowered. And with deep conviction. The deep conviction that Paul speaks of is pleroforia. (laughs) Pleroforia means entire confidence. Deeply convinced. Fully known. Fully assured. You were chosen by God, empowered by His Holy Spirit, and have entire confidence in God. Fully assured in God. Deeply convinced in God. Fully know in Christ what awaits us. You show me men who are cowering to fear, and I will show you men that have never figured out what the deep convictions of the faith are. Church, if you wait till that day to decide how you'll stand, I can predict it for you. You've already fallen. Men of deep conviction are those that were chosen by God and empowered by the Spirit, and they have already decided where they stand. I can tell you that the Scripture says in the day of evil when you've done all the stand, stand. I can tell you that the Scripture says, He who endures till the end. I can tell you that the church is surrounded as surely as that map was surrounded. But the living God in the seventh chapter of Daniel shows up and rules in favor of the saints. I pray that you become people of deep convictions. You might even see what the sixth verse says. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. In the face of suffering, can you welcome it with joy? Are your convictions such that you've already given up your life? Or does suffering prove to you that you are still holding on to so much of your life? Paul was a man of conviction, and you all admire him. He didn't stop with saying, admire me, because I'm a man of conviction. Instead, he said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. I say life-changing ministries will rise to its finest hour when every person aspires to the greatest call. We have given our pulpit away more than I think many churches do because we want to inspire in every man, woman in this room the kind of deep conviction, the kind of holy masculinity that longs for this day, not shrinks from it. Our convictions inspire each other and encourage each other that we should have boldness to act. Make no mistake about it. The kingdom is about action and now is the time. I have quoted this to you many times and I will do it many more times. I will do it until you rush the stage and make me stop doing it. C.T. Studd. Too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time of waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. War is declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven will fight for us as we for Him. We will not build on sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear before the world... I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him, and we will live, and we will die for Him, and we will do it with His joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than live trusting in the arm of man. And when we've come to this position... The battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign in sight. We will have the real holiness of God. Not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness. One of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. The generations before us have been populated by lost and saved alike that have made their mark on this world because they dared to do something worth doing. You have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. You have been chosen by God. If we obtain the kind of deep conviction that calls evil evil and righteousness righteousness, our God will hand victory to us. Seven times in the book of Revelation to 100% of the churches that were addressed, to every church that the book was addressed, these words appear, to he who overcomes. Revelation 2.7, Revelation 2.11, Revelation 2.17, Revelation 2.26, Revelation 3.5, 3.12, and 3.21, to he 
who overcomes. We are the church of the overcomers because there is no other kind. If there be a church that does not answer this call, that does not rise to the place that 1 John says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. All they have proven is they were not a church. They were a prostitute masquerading as a bride. I pray today that our convictions be set firmly, that we seek the power that we need and walk in the assurance that we were chosen. You were selected by God for this time. You were empowered by God for this time. And when you acquire the convictions needed for this time, all the power of hell will not be able to contain you. Could we stand to our feet?